Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and I'm back with Tony Simon. Hello again. Hello. Good to be here. We're going to talk about intellectual property today. So there's basically four types of intellectual property, patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets. And then there's some other ones like write of publicity, those kind of things. But the thing to remember first is patents and copyrights are exclusively federal jurisdiction. In our constitution, the founding fathers said, it's important for people to be innovative and invent things and for authors to create things. And that's good for everyone. It's good for society. In order to do that, we need to give protections to inventors and authors. Because if you create something and somebody steals it and you have no recourse, you're not going to create things, right? You're not going to invest in creating things. So the Constitution gives Congress the right to grant monopolies, limited monopolies, for a certain duration for copyright and patent. Typically, people think of a patent as a utility patent, which means a useful invention. And you file an application with the Patent and Trademark Office. It's examined. This is where you hire a patent attorney or agent to help you usually. You could do it on your own. I wouldn't recommend it. And then through the back and forth with the Patent Office, you either receive or don't receive a patent. And that patent is good for 20 years from the time you file the application. It gives you the right to prevent others from making, using, selling, importing, offering for sale your invention in the United States for those 20 years. The government does not police patents. It's up to you to sue someone if you think they're infringing your patent, okay? So for patent rights, you don't have any rights in an invention unless you keep it as a trade secret until you receive the patent, and then you have rights. So you have to request a patent from the government. There's an examination. You receive the patent. Copyrights are a little bit different. A copyright protects a work of art, something you create. It can be a book, it can be a song, it can be a photograph, it can be a painting, a movie, a video. Even when you use a camera and take a picture, you own the copyright in that particular picture. You automatically own a copyright as soon as you create that work. It's called a work, whatever it is, song, the photo. As soon as you, the legal term is reduce it to a tangible form of expression, you own the copyright in that work. You can apply to the government to register your copyright, and there's certain benefits and advantages to doing that, but you don't have to. Before you can file a lawsuit to sue someone for copyright infringement, you have to have a registration. So you have to register your copyright before you file a lawsuit. You can do that later after the infringement starts, but it's always in your benefit to register your copyright beforehand if you can for a number of reasons. But you own the copyright. It's up to you to police it. And copyright prevents copying. It doesn't prevent independent creation. So if you write a book and I happen to write the same story on my own, we can each have our own copyright and I don't infringe yours. I only infringe yours if I have access to yours and there's substantial similarity. So copyright protects someone from copying. Now, if I make what's called a derivative work, so I take your short story and I make a novel or I make a movie, then I own the right to prevent you from making something out of my work. That's an infringement. So that's considered copying. 
And I distinguish independent creation because in patents, if I have a patent on my widget and you independently create your widget in your basement, you never saw mine, you still infringe. It's not a defense to patent infringement. And the reason for that for patents is we want to reward inventors to make known their inventions so other people can improve upon them. So if I invent a widget and you improve it, right? My favorite example is a photocopy machine. The inventor of the first photocopy machine, it was a black and white photocopy machine, Xerox or whoever. They received a patent. Someone came along and developed a color photocopy machine. That's an improvement on the copy machine. They could get their own patent. Now, to, in order to sell that copy machine, they might infringe the first patent. So there's some overlap there. But the goal is get inventions out there, get people to know them, and then other innovative people will improve them. And that helps competition and it helps innovation and it helps our economy. Copyrights, we want to reward a copyright author or artist. And they should be able to publish and display their works without the fear of someone taking them, right? We want there to be a free exchange of information. Now, trademarks are a little bit different. Trademark is an indicator of source. So famous trademarks like Coca-Cola or Ford or GMC, those are trademarks. And those are indicators of source. And what I mean by that is when you see a John Deere tractor that's green, they actually have a trademark on that green color. And so you can, uh, as a consumer, know I know I like Coca-Cola, and when I buy that Coca-Cola, I know the type of quality I'm going to expect, the taste, the flavor. And so there's a bit of consumer protection there, and it, there's also protection of the trademark owner. Now, trademarks, just like copyrights, as soon as you create it, you own the copyright. Trademarks, as soon as you use a mark in commerce, you put up a website, you put up a sign, you throw out an ad, you sell a product and offer it for sale with the mark on it, you own that trademark in the geographic area where you're using it. It was a time when I first started practicing where you would have rights in St. Louis and not somewhere else. As soon as people put up a website now, you have basically nationwide rights in that trademark or service mark. There's service marks for services you sell and trademarks for goods. You can register your trademark and it's something you really should do, both for the benefit of telling the world hey, this is my mark, I own it. And then you get to put the circle R. So if you see a circle R, it means it's registered trademark. If you just see TM, it means I consider it a trademark, it's not registered. But you put the world on notice and then you have presumptive nationwide rights. And then when somebody else comes along and tries to use a mark that's confusingly similar, so remember in patents, you have to infringe the patent, you're making the same invention basically. Copyrights, you're copying the work. Trademarks, you're using a mark or an indicator of source that's confusingly similar. So if you get real close to John Deere Green and you're selling tractors, you're probably going to infringe their trademark. And that, again, is to protect the public as much as it is the trademark owner. I'm thinking of the phrase, the ignorance of the law is no excuse. It's with the registration process, it's almost like you're saying the ignorance of the fact that it was registered is no excuse. Correct. That you've got to go do the work. And it might not be easy, right? There's a lot of information on those registrations. There sites. is, but if you hire a trademark lawyer or there's services that'll search for you, you know, it might cost you $500, $1,000. The reason to do it is if you're thinking about coming out with a product or a service and you're going to use a certain mark and you're going to invest $50,000, why not spend five hundred dollars to make sure you're not stepping on anyone else's toes? because you're gonna create a website, you're gonna print business cards, you're gonna print stationery, you're gonna advertise. All of that involves cost. 
So before you select that mark, it's called clearing the mark. And so you have a lawyer or a company that does that. Go out and make sure you're not selling footwear using the Converse name or you're not using the Nike swoosh or something close to it. And that'll give you some level of protection because you can be pretty sure there might be somebody out there who doesn't have a website or something, but you're pretty clear. Another area of intellectual property we haven't talked about that I'd like to talk about are trade secrets. Now, the most famous trade secret would be like the Coca-Cola formula. So a trade secret is something that you can keep a secret and other people can't figure it out. And it's good forever, as long as you keep it a secret. The types of things you need to do to keep it a secret are you have to only disclose it to your employees who have a need to know, that you have them sign non-competes and non-disclosure agreements so you protect the trade secret. You keep it in a safe. You don't let it out there. Most trade secrets are chemical formulas or ingredients, those kinds of things, because those are really hard to reverse engineer. So reverse engineer means to take apart something and figure out how it works. So a trade secret, it's not under federal law. It's state by state, but there's what's called the Uniform Trade Secrets Act that all the states have adopted. And it basically says if you have a trade secret and someone steals it or takes it in an improper way, and typically it's an ex-employee who knows it and goes out and starts a competing business, you can stop them and you can put an end to it. So the good thing about trade secrets is they can last forever. Now, if you have a product or a widget that somebody can take apart, trade secrets aren't going to help because as soon as they take it apart, they see how it works and they can duplicate it. And if you don't have patent protection on that, then you're not going to have any protection. So I also mentioned trademarks and trademarks, they can last forever as long as you continue to use the mark in commerce. As long as you're using it, your trademark stays in force. Copyrights are valid. I think it's 75 years from the date of the death of the author. And patents are good, as I said, 20 years from the date you file the application. Could you tell us the advantages of registering for copyrights and trademarks? So copyrights and trademarks have what are called statutory damages. So patents are covered by Title 15 of the United States Code. Copyrights are Title 17. They're statutory creations, right? So in the statute that Congress created to protect copyrights, it says if you have a registration, even if you're not damaged at all by someone's infringement, you can receive from $20,000 up to $150,000 if you win, plus your attorney's fees for each work that's infringed. I saw that statute and I saw the range and I didn't understand how they determine where those damages will be placed on any particular case. It's in the discretion of the judge. So the judge gets to decide. And basically the factors that are considered are the egregiousness, right? Did they know it was copyrighted? Did they copy it blatantly? And a big factor is, did you make money? Did the defendant make money and use it to a commercial advantage? And did it harm the plaintiff, even though the harm may not be monetary? I have had cases where someone took a photograph or took one of my client's works, put it on the internet, and then it gets proliferated all over the internet. And now other people are using that work. And my client's able to stop the one person that started it, but now it's all over the internet and it's near impossible to get off. That's another factor that can be considered. And the same thing applies for counterfeit goods and trademarks. So a trademark registration, you're letting the world know, and that's one reason you should register your mark. Hey, don't use this mark. I've got a registration on it. 
And a second thing is you can also get certain statutory damages and benefits. I have a side business or an interest in art and I'm creating digital art. So I've seen as an attorney, sometimes you start something, a little business on the side, and then you're thinking it's a little business, right? And then it grows. And then all of a sudden you're big, but you didn't take care of a lot of things on the ground floor. You know, it's good to hope and assume that it will work because it might work. Right. So I'm your client and I'm telling you, I'm doing digital art. I like to do greeting cards, wall hangings, other printed things. And I made up a name here. I called it Paint-tastic, where it's like a combination of two words. What else should I be worrying about as a, a little business that might go nowhere, hopefully might go somewhere? First off, sometimes hobbies can turn into real businesses. And so you need to make sure you protect yourself, especially if you're being innovative and you're creating things. In your particular business, since you're going to be creating digital art, Paint-tastic, and that's the second point you bring up, would be a registrable mark as long as nobody else is using it because it's not a generic name for the goods that you're selling, right? I can't trademark and register butter for butter because my competitors have to be able to describe the generic name of the product. If you tried to say digital photography was your trademark, you'd never be able to protect that and the trademark office wouldn't give you a registration. So there's different levels of protectability of trademarks. Generic words, for products are not protectable ever. Descriptive words, right? Descriptive marks where they might describe some characteristic. They're protectable, not immediately, but if you go basically five years and nobody else is using it, you can get a registration. Then there's suggestive marks, which are like Tide for laundry detergent, right? Tide washes away the stains, automatically protectable. And then arbitrary marks are the strongest, right? Camel for cigarettes. Camel has nothing to do with cigarettes. Kodak, a made-up word for film, automatically protectable. And it's funny because sometimes marks can become generic, like Xerox. People used to say, go Xerox this for me. And they were starting to be used as a generic word to describe that. The mark escalator, the moving stairs, was originally somebody's trademark. And over time, they lost their trademark rights because the public began to know that as an escalator. That's what it's called. And so they lost their trademark rights. And so that's another reason you have to police your mark. You have to go out there and make sure people aren't using it in a generic sense and people aren't using it in a confusing sense. I think your mark would be protectable. So then we look at what you're creating. So it's not a useful invention, so it wouldn't be covered by patent. It's digital. If it were artwork, but it were three-dimensional, you could have design patents, which cover non-functional ornamental features of a three-dimensional object. And those are good for 14 years. And you basically send drawings and pictures of your device to the patent office. Copyright is what you would have protected. So as soon as you, because a copyright can cover sculpture or three-dimensional works and it cover two-dimensional. So as soon as you create it, you own the copyright. And then you would file to register your copyright in the copyright office. That's something that you could do on your own. You might have some questions. Trademark office is pretty helpful. You can do it online. I think it's, what, $75? One thing that people always run into, like you say, you're starting a small business. Do you have anyone else taking these photographs for you? Because if you did, now you need an agreement with them because unless they're an employee and it's in the scope of their employment, they own the copyright because they took the picture. A lot of companies will have somebody create a website for them. Who owns the copyright on that website? You better make certain that the agreement with the website creator assigns the copyright to you so that your business owns it. 
Otherwise, if you no longer use them as, say, they're a hosting service, you can't use your website anymore because they own the copyright on it. So those are the kind of things you need to think about with copywriter. Who's creating it? Who is actually the author of the work? If it's you, in your particular instance, that's fine. Now, if you run it as an LLC or a business, as opposed to a sole proprietorship, you need to assign those copyrights over to your company. I bet that surprised more than a few people. Yes, yes. It is surprising. And I can tell you, having dealt with that, there's a number of companies, most of them say they own the copyright. They explicitly put that in there. And that's something you really need to look at. So my trademark is the name. There's something called a mark, a drawing, and a specimen Right. as right. you apply for these things. Well, you can have a word mark, or you can have a composite, or you can have artwork. The Nike swoosh is not a word mark, right? That's why they came up with the name swoosh to describe it. But Nike, the word Nike, is a trademark, and it's a word mark. And sometimes they're used together, and sometimes they're not. If you have a composite mark where you have artwork and a word or a name or a symbol in a name, you should think about registering them independent of one another and as a composite. You know, I would do both because sometimes someone will copy the symbol, but they won't copy the name. And they'll say, well, nobody be confused because I've got my name on it and you've got your name on yours, even though we're using the same symbol. And of course that increases confusion, right? Because now people don't think that that particular mark is owned by one company. Let's assume I've got my registration all put away the way that you recommend. And now I walk away and I think everything's fine, but you've also said that it's up to me to defend it. That's right. How do you defend something like that? There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of things. Right. It's up to you to police your mark. In most trademark cases, the touchstone is you'll get contacted by someone who thinks that you sold them something or they got it from you or that you're affiliated with some other company. And that's when you know there's actually real confusion occurring in the marketplace. But an easy way is just every week, go on Google and search for your word mark or your name and see what comes up and see what other people are using. As you said, for copyrights, Google actually has a service that you can do a search for your particular artwork and see who else is using your artwork and they can be found that way. But it's your obligation to know what's going on and look at the marketplace. And then if someone's doing something, fortunately, Amazon, GoDaddy, YouTube, a lot of these services that put things online have the ability for you to say, look, here's my work, here's my registration, you know, stop them from using it. And they'll stop it. And then there's like a, uh, it's like an administrative process where the other side, if they think they're being wronged, can challenge that. But you can do that on your own without filing suit. Is there an automated way to do that? Because if you're a, if you write a lot of articles or you take a lot of pictures, that's a lot of work to be going out each week and making sure that everyone's yeah, honoring your ownership. I'm not sure. I know there are some services offered that police things on the internet. I don't know how they do it though. I know there are services you can hire to do that. So let's assume that I find somebody taking my work and reselling it. And I do have it registered. I have a copyright on this particular picture. What are the considerations? Well, you come to me and say, somebody's using my work. And I say, okay, well, to file the lawsuit, we're going to need $450 filing fee. <laughs> and so if you're making $200 a year off the photographs and somebody's stealing it, it's probably not going to be worth your time to take that action. And so there's alternative ways, either writing them a letter, 
or like I said, contacting wherever they're publishing it to see if they can stop. But even, you know, that goes on even to a bigger scale, not just small businesses, but businesses that make a couple million dollars a year. If they're going to have to pay an attorney in litigation and it's not contingent, right, on winning, and they're going to pay hourly, that decision has to be made, whether it's a good business decision to actually file a lawsuit. Let's say I'm driving down the highway and I see a big corporation advertising on a billboard. And lo and behold, there's my image on the billboard. Is that worth filing suit? And would attorneys be willing to take that kind of thing on a contingency fee? It can, yes, because it's not just statutory damages, but actual damages. So under the copyright statute, you're entitled to receive from the infringer the profits they've made based on the infringement. And all you have to put into evidence is their gross revenues. They have to prove deductible expenses. So the copyright statute says, if your copyright's being infringed and the defendant in court made money off of it, all you have to do is come in and say, look, they made $300,000, a million dollars off of that billboard because that's the revenue. And then they have to prove, well, no, only some of it came from that and all the other stuff. So you can get actual damages. The other thing is if it's a trademark, I have sued a number of big companies who blatantly took my client's trademark. And the hammer in those cases isn't money that you lost. It's the threat of an injunction. So if you have a big company who's done a bunch of advertising with respect to a particular mark, and if they lose that case, they lose hundreds of millions of dollars, typically they come to the table and say, how about we buy your mark from you? We'll pay you some value that let you pick a new mark. We'll give you something for your troubles. And those are the cases where you can get attorneys to take those cases on a contingency fee basis. Let's talk very briefly about patent law. What is so tricky about a typical patent registration or lawsuit? Well, because a trademark is a single thing. A copyright is a single thing. And you look at it, right? To do a test for infringement for copyright, you compare your photograph with the infringing photograph and you look at them. That's what the jury is going to do. The scope of your protection is your copyrighted work. It's easy to see the four corners of it. Trademark, your word mark versus the other side's word mark. Is it confusingly similar? Are consumers being confused? Pretty easy to see. And there are some pitfalls though when you register your trademark to pick the right classes of goods, right? Footwear versus tennis shoes. Footwear versus dress shoes, right? You want to get it as broad as you can. So your normal scope of expansion is covered. Patents, on the other hand, your scope of protection is determined by the words in what are called the claims at the end of the patent. So I claim, I invent a chair. At the end of the patent, I'll say, I claim a device for sitting that has four legs, a seat, and a back, and they're all connected together. That's what I protect. Somebody comes along and has a chair with three legs or a single big leg. Do they infringe or not? Mm, now you've got a debate. Now you've got a fight. So the patent attorney's job is to craft claims at the end of your patent of varying scope. Because if you claim it too broadly, you're not going to get a patent. Your patent's going to be invalid. If you claim it too narrowly, it's easy to get around. It's an art. Good patent attorneys try and envision how someone in the future might try to get around your invention. And the problem is they have to use words to describe the invention. And those words get interpreted later by judges and juries. And if you're trying to do that on your own, you're not going to recognize the pitfalls. 
And so really good patent attorneys, and I always said patent attorneys should all litigate some patent cases because I see the mistakes and you can really learn from those mistakes. But you know, why did you use this word or why did you use that word? Your rights are determined by the word choice you put in that patent application and getting someone who's experienced at doing that to get the best scope of protection is well worth the cost. Let's talk about the litigation. For, okay. for instance, maybe how discovery, what things you would seek in discovery and then how the trial would unfold too. Right. So for the first part, you have to make sure you have the right plaintiff, right? Who owns the copyright? Who owns the trademark? And you make sure you name that entity. And then you have to make sure you have the right defendant. And then there's specific venue statutes for copyright patents and trademarks. And you have to follow those venue statutes. So where you can sue a defendant is determined by statute. And those are different from other cases. The key thing with respect to most of these cases are, especially if it's a bigger company, how did you create the work that we say is infringing? How did you select the mark that we say is infringing? There's companies out there, as I said, that can do searches for you to prevent that from happening. And I don't know a single big company that doesn't do those searches. So if they're out there using your mark and it's registered, we know they knew about you. And that's important because that makes it willful infringement. That means they knew about it and they did it anyway. And I guarantee you any company worth its salt that has multiple trademarks, they have their own trademarks, has done searches and they know you're there and they decided to go forward anyway. So that's a key piece of proof we want to try and nail down in any case. The second thing is in copyright, as I said, it's what are their revenues, right? What are the dollars attributed to that particular infringement? Now, if you wrote a book and a big movie company stole your book and made a movie, every dollar they made is because of that infringement, right? Because it's one work, their movie. If on the other hand, it's a billboard, like you said, and we say that's a copy of our copyrighted work on that billboard and therefore you made money off of it. If they're selling books, that they copied, we can count the number of books they sold and get their profits. That's an easier thing. But you have to find out how are they making money off of this infringement. With respect to trademark, how many customers did they have that came to them as a result of, say, a website that had the infringing mark on it? There's statistics you can get for that. The other thing is, have they received complaints? Have they received any proof of confusion? Because you don't have to prove confusion in a trademark case. You just have to prove a likelihood of confusion. I've got a case right now where he's still, during the litigation, he's getting two or three calls a week of angry customers because they think he's the infringer. And he's been using the mark, him and his family, since 1968. And this other company came along and started using it. And his reputation is really getting tarnished because of that. That's what you go through. And then, obviously, you have to have experts sometimes if it's a musical work, you're going to need an expert who can kind of explain to the jury because most lay people don't have the ability to discern certain musical tones and notes in their head. If it's a copyrighted work where it's a visual work where they can, the jury can look at it, you may not need an expert, but you need an expert with respect to damages. So we'd want to hire experts there. Patents, we always have technical experts and damages experts. And then for trademark infringement, sometimes you'll do a survey. You can have a company go out there and they'll interview people at the mall or at some public intersection and show them the two marks and see if they think they're related. And there's a whole industry that does surveys to prove 
that there's confusion. Now, if the mark's identical, you don't have to go to that extent. And usually that's going to take, before COVID, it was about 18 months to two years from filing to trial. If you have a trademark infringement and there's harm being occurred right away, you can actually get a preliminary injunction where you can go to court and say, judge, we need a trial in a month. And if I show you I'm likely to win, you need to shut them down now pending trial. And that can really shorten litigation because once they're enjoined, the judge has already found a likelihood of confusion and you're likely to win. They usually want to settle. Let's talk about some of the pitfalls of trying to enforce your intellectual property rights. So one area that you need to be careful, especially for inventions that you're going to try to get a patent on, you have to keep your invention a secret and not offer it for sale and not publicly disclose it until you file a patent application. If you offer your invention for sale and you try to sell them and you publicly disclose your invention, and then you try to file a patent application, it will be rejected. We now have in the United States what's called absolute novelty. So if you think you have an invention, don't go tell everybody about it and don't try to make one and sell it. You don't have to make a prototype to get a patent. Go to a patent attorney, have them do a search to see if somebody else has already patented it, and then file the application. Then you can do whatever you want with it. But if you disclose your invention, other than maybe to your spouse, your partner or your lawyer or somebody that has a duty to keep it secret, you risk never being able to get a patent. What's the best approach to understanding fair use? I think the easiest example of fair use is using a copyrighted work for critique or to make fun of, right? Satire. So if you're taking someone else's movie or their book and you just use a little bit of a clip and you want to critique it, or teaching, right, in a university. If you want to teach your class and you're using small snippets of the copyrighted work to do teaching and you're not making money, you're not using it in a commercial sense, then it's more likely going to be fair use. It is a pretty complex issue. The Supreme Court recently had a case on whether it's a judge or jury issue just last year. And the other thing to remember is, I'll give you an example with a book. I have a book and I'm selling my book and I want people to buy my book. If your use of my copyrighted book makes it so people don't have to buy my book, that's not fair use because you're eliminating my ability to exploit my work and make money off of it. If you're only using a little bit of it, it doesn't mean somebody's not gonna buy my book, right? They might even buy my book now because you're exposing it. That's the best way I would explain fair use. Maybe we can close this episode with your comment on, it seems like there's a whole lot of folks out there that just don't wanna believe this whole network of law exists. They say, I saw it on the internet, it's mine. I'm gonna right click it, do whatever I want. And maybe your earlier comment explains it, that when someone right clicks a photo and puts it on their own website, usually there's no money in suing them. What's your feeling about what the pulse is of the country as far as whether people are just thinking the internet is a wild west, we can do whatever we want, versus we got to be careful. Is it just a matter of whether you got something to lose or not? Yeah, I mean, I have a particular bent in favor of the creator because I represent a lot of creators. And I think everybody needs to know it's inappropriate. I used to tell my children when the iPods first came out and they were able to copy music. And I remember telling them it's no different than walking into a store, taking a CD of somebody's music, sticking it under your coat and stealing it because that person created that and they have a right to be compensated for it. And just because it's easy on the internet doesn't make it right. 
Now, whether or not somebody is going to file a lawsuit over that happening on the internet, you know, it might be cost prohibitive. But from the standpoint of the creator, somebody spent time and effort, and that's what our constitution wants to do. We want to reward people. And so if you use the internet as an excuse that just because it's easy, we get to do that, who's going to create things anymore? And so we need to reward creators, and that's something they own. Even though it's intangible, a copyright's intangible, it's still your work and it's your right, just as if it's your phone or your headphones or your glasses, somebody comes in and steals them, that's wrong. Well, thank you for joining us today, the second of two episodes. If anyone's listening and enjoyed this one, you were also featured in a prior episode. But thank you for talking about antitrust, intellectual property. Thank you, Tony, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, it's great to be here. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith, see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune into other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom and Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning. <laughs>